For our scripture reading today, we'll turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, and reading through the end of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, and beginning at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the river went, a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first was Sidon or Sihon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, there where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man 
and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This far our scripture reading for this morning. And in connection, we will also read from Lord's Day 41. Lord's Day 41, which is found on page 78 in the back of your Psalter. Lord's Day 41, page 78 in the back of your Psalter, where question 108 asks, What does the seventh commandment teach us? The answer is that all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. And question 109, does God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? The answer is, since both our body and souls are temples of the Holy Ghost, he commands us to preserve them pure and holy. And therefore he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men there too. Dear congregation, would you drink milk if it was diluted with detergents or caustic soda or glucose or white paint or refined oils? Would you want to drink that milk? Well, it's reported that in India, 68% of the milk has those contaminants in it. But it's not only in different countries in the world. There was also in the, in the 1850s a well-known case in New York where they, the people started, the farmers started feeding their cattle, their dairy cattle with a, it's what's called swill. It's the leftovers from the distilleries, a, a mush left over from the distilleries. And, but it, it produced, it was a bad, poor quality feed and it produced a poor quality milk. 
And so what they did was they, they would put plaster into the milk to give it some more whiteness. They'd put egg and, and starch into the milk to, to thicken it up a little bit. And they'd add some molasses. But this became known as the swill milk scandal after 8,000 babies died that year from drinking it. So this is called adulterated milk. Now the word adulterate, the, the root word adulterate, means to contaminate. Making something impure by adding foreign substances. Replacing the proper elements with, with something of less value. And it's always motivated with, with selfish and sinful motives. It's never done with the best interest of the other parties in mind. Adding these things to the milk was always for the profit of the one who was selling it, not for the benefit of those who were drinking it, as can be seen with the 8,000 babies that died. But the seventh commandment prohibits the adulteration of marriage. The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Because God created a pure and an undiluted marriage. And to add anything into that equation of marriage at any point in our life, whether we are single or whether we are married, is to adulterate the marriage. It dilutes it with foreign substance and it makes it into a toxic mixture. Now, as we've been working through these Ten Commandments, we have to recognize that we have kept none of them. And this one is no different. We know that we are all guilty beyond measure of breaking every commandment. Even the ones that we thought we were doing pretty good at, we can see how far short we fall of God's perfection and requirements. And so this makes us realize that obeying the commandments is not the way into heaven. It's not how we earn our salvation. But rather it shows us our misery, it shows us our brokenness, and it should drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the only one who has kept the law perfectly and where we can also find forgiveness for our sin and brokenness and where we can find grace to help in time of need to work forward towards obedience in this life. And so as we look at this command, we'll, we'll do so by, by taking a broad overview of what marriage is, to, to see how God created it in the unadulterated, the undiluted way. And so our theme is simply the undiluted marriage. And I have, I believe it's seven brief thoughts. But first we see that it's planned. God had an undiluted plan for an undiluted marriage that he created. And in our world today, we can see there's such a confusion of what marriage really is. And with our own nation trying to redefine what it is and even redefine who people are, there's also much confusion about our relationship with God. There's much confusion of what it really means to be a child of God. 
And all this confusion in the world really is the effect or the symptoms of that broken relationship with God. That broken relationship caused by sin when Adam and Eve fell in paradise. And so how we pursue relationships in this life also is an indication of how we understand what God's will is for us in this life. And so we need to go back here to Genesis, what we read, where God created all things. And in Genesis 1, we can see the chronological account of of creation. And all through chapter 1, we didn't read the whole chapter, but you can see how God, created by His Word, He said, and it was, and He saw that it was good. And then in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says He created man in His own image, Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 31, he says, it says he saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. But now as we get to Genesis 2, it gives a broader uh, and a more, more detailed overview of marriage itself. After God had placed Adam in the garden in, in verse 15, he commanded him to work and to keep it. And then in, in verse 18... It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now God here, he mentions that something is not good. But it doesn't mean that here something is made wrong. But God is drawing our attention to this detail here. to to the situation, God has made everything good up to this point, but this means that it's not yet quite finished. It's not completed yet. And so what was not good? What was not complete in that sense? Verse 18 says it's not good that a man should be alone. So God is drawing us to his, our attention to his plan. And we need to recognize, first of all, that marriage comes from God. It was his plan. And since it was God's um, plan that marriage comes from God, he also sets the standard for marriage. He writes the owner's manual, if, if you wish, of what marriage is to be. Because if we try to set our own standards, if we try to write our own rules, and we begin to do what we want, we will dilute the marriage. We will add something to it or change something from it that does not belong in it. And so first we must understand that we must follow God's purpose and plan in our life, whether it is in our single life or a married life. And then secondly, uh, produced. God planned a marriage, but then he produced a desire for marriage in Adam. At this point, it seems that Adam did not even realize what he was missing yet. But this was God's plan, and God would also make him aware of this situation. He awakened that desire in Adam because verse 18 says, God says it is not good that man should be alone. And in the end of verse 20, it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And what happens between those two verses, 18 and 20? Verse 19 explains how God formed the animals and then he brought them all to Adam and Adam had to name them. Now, Adam was made in in perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom, and he would have had a good comprehension and understanding of what was happening. As he saw all the animals coming, 
he would have recognized that every animal had a partner, a male and a female. They were to be fruitful and to populate the earth. There needs to be a male and a female to reproduce. And so God here, he makes Adam aware of that need. But for Adam, it says in verse 20, the end, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. There was no other kind like Adam, no other human being, no one comparable, no one compatible. And so with that, he would have also awakened that desire in Adam for a helper. And so we can see that God also creates a desire, but God also creates the, the need, or supplies the need for that desire. And as we can read in Proverbs 18, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The good desires are given by the Lord. He created desire. And Adam's desire would have been perfect and undiluted by sin because this was before the fall. But our desires have been adulterated by sin. And our desires, without any proper outlet, will end up in despair and discouragement, or we will seek for a way to fulfill that desire in our own way, in the wrong way. And so we must live our daily life with much care and much prayer for the grace of God, recognizing that not only the wisest man in Scripture, Solomon, not only the strongest man in Scripture, Samson, not only the godliest man in Scripture, David, they all fell through sexual immorality. And who are we to think that we are greater than any of those three? They followed their desires in the wrong way. But God also gives the gift of singleness, as Paul explains, where desires are channeled, are controlled by God. There's also the fact that we live in a broken and in a fallen world that there are many people who struggle with the desire for a spouse and yet oft, many of them through the whole life don't find the fulfillment of that desire even though they desire a godly spouse that is never fulfilled in this fallen world and our desires we know have been tainted by sin and so there are many wrong desires and many desires followed wrong in a wrong way you can see what's happening greatly in our culture now homosexual desires for same-sex relationships are not uh, godly or desires for more than one partner or unhealthy desires focusing only on the physical aspect of a relationship the sexual relation the relationship rather than the whole a marriage itself, everything that is encompassed in it, the, the spiritual, the emotional, and the mental. And therefore, our desires must be directed and controlled by God's will. And so there's the aspect of being alone that makes us vulnerable to following our desires in the wrong way. And so we need to be careful in every stage of life not to spend time alone with people of the opposite sex in an uncontrolled environment. You might think that nothing will happen. You might think that you are strong enough. But when your desires surface 
And when opportunity presents itself, sin will follow. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But God created a desire for marriage. There is a good desire. And that desire must be guided by Scripture and be undiluted by sin. But then thirdly, provided. God created that desire, but God also provided the exact match to meet that desire. Verse 22 says, God made a woman. But it's interesting to see that God did not just make a woman from the dust. In verse 7, he says he formed Adam out of the dust, but God made a woman in a special way. Verse 21 says God took a rib out of Adam, and from that he formed the woman. It's like God put the finishing touch on his creation. He completed creation when he made this woman. It was like he he crafted her with, with extra care and attention and detail. He made a helper comparable to Adam. He created a capable, a much-needed, a a well-suited woman to support him in his calling. And here we can see he could not do that on his own. And that's why it's not good, it's not not complete that he should have been alone. And so here, this this means that she's comparable, that that there's a likeness, and yet there is a difference. They're similar, they're both humans, but they're opposite sex. Men and women are compatible, complementary, and yet different. And so male and female, he made them. They're compatible and made for each other. And any other definition of marriage is not marriage, but an adulteration of what God has created. So we can see that God gives you the best. And we also need to learn from Scripture what that means. Because we don't have pure eyes and pure hearts and pure understanding like Adam did in the garden. We naturally view ourselves through our fallen state and a sinful heart. We live in a culture that seeks to, to teach us to see men and women, men and women in the way that they, they, they think is appropriate. But that's so much different than what God defines it as. Uh, the culture teaches us to look at the outward appearances, what they look like, what they have, what they possess, or, or who they are in society. And that's why we must be so very careful in what we listen to and what we look at, the music, the movies, the books of this world. They are indoctrinating you to see things through their lens instead of Scripture's lens. And it affects how you view other people and how you view a potential partner. And our own heart has, has a fallen view of what marriage is supposed to be. Even growing up, you would likely remember that, that marriage is so often seen in a negative light. It's seen as, as bondage instead of a blessing, as a hindrance to pursuing your own goals instead of the, the God's given means to fulfill your goals. But if we can see what God has created, you begin to realize that God has given you something that He has specifically fashioned for you to give you more than you can even desire or know to ask for. 
And as he did with Adam, he gives you what you didn't even know you needed. And as the years of marriage progress, you begin to see something of what that means. God gives a helper comparable and suitable with who you can accomplish the things that you can never have done on your own. And so to adulterate what God provides is to look for something that God never intended for you to have. And what a blessing it is then when we don't know the direction that God knows what we need and that God provides by His grace what is best rather than what we would pursue in our own fallen state. Then, fourthly, presented. God provides us what we need. God and God presented Adam with the woman that he created for his need. And this is why we must be in prayer continually for a godly spouse from the first days that we were old enough to think of, of a partner. And we must live our whole lives, whether married or single, in prayer that we would live pure and unadulterated lives. And so children, don't talk about crushes. Don't talk about how people just look. Don't talk bad about marriage. Don't, don't joke or misuse the language of marriage. Because that's all adulterating the idea in your heart and mind. Diluting the potential of marriage. But pray that God would direct you to the one who God made specifically for you. And give you the grace now in your time of singleness. And so Genesis 2 verse 22 says, God brought her to the man. Then Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam here, he recognizes who this is. This is the helper made comparable to him. She came from him, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. The woman made like man, made from man, made for man, and now brought to the man. And God even gave him the authority to name him. And and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And so here God also gives the man that that headship and that authority. And that's why Romans 5 says that sin has come into the world through one man. That even through this union, sin came, but through the same union, Christ would come to redeem sinners. And to adulterate this relationship is to find a spouse not in God's will. It says Christians don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To adulterate this relationship is to act in any way that contradicts how God God defined the roles of husbands and wives given in Ephesians 5. So God here represented this woman to Adam and he brought him together into sacred marriage and it's after that in verse 31 in chapter 1 that God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good and so in a sense you can say that out of the seven and a half billion people in this world now there is one if the Lord wills and no more than that that is that specific one that God would have you find But then in in the fifth place, purposed. God united man and woman together in marriage, but he also spelled out the specific purpose for marriage. 
Genesis 2 verse 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so here we can see there's that, there's that unique bond where two become one. You leave that parental home and you, you become united together. The King James puts it this way. You leave and you cleave. It's like you, you, you can never be unjoined from that again. You become a unit so united that you operate as one. Whether it's related to your finances or any activities you do or bringing children into the world or raising children, everything is done as a unit, working together for the benefit and for the building up together of that unit. And so marriage is that commitment, is that, is that covenant. And all your choices, all your actions must be governed in the context of that commitment. And so that's the one goal, is to build up and to preserve marriage and to avoid anything that would dilute it or contaminate it, whether our words, our thoughts, or our actions, or our desires. And it's inside this one union that God gives Adam these commands in chapter 1, verse 27, where he created man in his own image, male and female, and then he blessed them and he said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds, and all the, all, everything that moves. And here is one of the reasons why Adam was not to be alone, because he can't f- be fruitful and multiply alone. He can't fill the earth alone. He can't subdue it alone. He can't have dominion over this world alone. But through his children and through the generations, that is made possible as they spread over the earth. Now there are seven and a half billion people in this world working on subduing this world. And so she is that one suitable helper out of that seven and a half billion now, a companion to support the man in his calling to fill and to subdue. Not a servant. She's not made a servant, but a specifically designed partner without who Adam could not fulfill the commands that God had given him. So that means that there needs to be that bond of unity in the marriage where you support one another, where love and respect govern everything that we think and say and do with each other or away from each other. But that also means that sex is created only for inside the marriage bond. And anything else results in an adulteration and the contamination of the individual or the couple. I don't like to speak about these things, but our world forces us to uh, to the degree that we need to in public. And so any form of sex outside of the marriage bond ruins any prospect of an unadulterated marriage. Physical intimacy is intended for only the strengthening of the marriage bond, and it's proven that outside of the marriage bond, it, it, it brings greater hurt, greater division, and greater pain, but in the marriage bond, it creates a unity and a bonding, and that it's for the purpose of fulfilling and subduing the earth with godly children. God created marriage with that purpose for the continuation of the human race in an orderly way. And along with raising children or 
having children comes the responsibility and duty of raising them, to, to lead them, to train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To subdue the earth includes training them and equipping them to subdue the earth according to God's word. And that's why Psalm 127, as we sang, said, Children are a heritage of the Lord. They're, they're a blessing. And the Lord compares them to that quiver full of arrows that are to be shot into this world for the purpose of subduing this world. They're the warriors. They're to become warriors for Christ and for his cause and for his kingdom. So this is God's purpose. And so all sexual activity before or outside the marriage bond, whether in our thoughts, whether in our words, whether in our deeds, is motivated by a sinful and self-gratification, seeking to fulfill your desires in the wrong way and wrong place. And then our focus becomes the consumer mentality rather than for the building up and strengthening of the union in an undiluted marriage bond. And that is an adulteration and contamination of what God has created pure. But then, sixth, briefly, God perfected the marriage he created. Verse 31 of chapter 1 says, God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. He created that undiluted union between man and woman, and in a state of paradise, it was pure. It was undiluted. And that perfection is shown in the purity of that marriage. In verse 25, it says, They were naked, and they were not ashamed. In chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There was nothing to be ashamed of. It was perfect and pure. There was nothing that contaminated it. There was nothing that diluted it. And today, God still holds marriage in such high esteem. Hebrews 13 says, Marriage is honorable in all, the bed undefiled, but who among us and adulterers God will judge? And so God holds marriage in the highest esteem because it's his creation ordinance. And that's why we see many good marriages outside of the church in this world, because it's a creation ordinance. And that's why we see broken marriages inside and outside the church, because of sin. Sin brings shame. And Adam and Eve hid from God in shame and guilt after they sinned. They recognized their shame and they recognized their nakedness. And that shame and guilt is a result of the adulteration and diluting of what was pure. Our own sin adulterates. Our own sin dilutes. Our own sin contaminates what God created to be pure, to be a pure blend of husband and wife in that one cup of marriage. And this is why marriage is not easy. And as we read through these things, we we realize how broken our world is. We see how Satan fights so hard in this world to break marriages, to tear down marriages, to try to redefine marriage, to, to undermine marriage because it all points to God and it comes from God. Even in the best of marriages, there are so many trials and struggles and pains and hurts and that, that union and that bond is never fully there as it should be. But God also uses marriage to shape and to mold His people. That even in the difficulties that we have, God uses them 
for our benefit. And that even in the un in the, the circumstances that we find ourselves, though we cannot see the reason for them, the purpose for them, we cannot understand why they happen this way. We, we must look to God who has a purpose for everything that happens in this life. He uses these trials to shape His people, to mold their hearts, to purify our hearts from the sin that is within and that's what we see in the last place, that it is patterned. Marriage is patterned after the union of Christ and His church. And that brings us back to the planning stage even. Why did God plan marriage like this? God created man, mankind, but the, the union between God and man is broken and defiled by sin. The union between God and Adam and Eve in paradise is broken by sin, and our union with Him is broken. But Paul quotes this, this passage of Genesis in Ephesians 5. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so marriage is a picture of Christ. And that union that is made between Christ and His people, His church. And five, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, so that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That is God's purpose for every trial and every circumstance in her life. That is God's purpose and picture in marriage, that He is showing how Christ is redeeming His people from out of this world to, to purify them and make them holy. And so this union between God and sinners is again possible through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this life, He is preparing you for that special and spiritual wedding day. And so even in this life, God, if, if we think of these, these headings, God produces a desire and a need in our hearts for Christ. That our desire be to, be, to be with Him as our bridegroom forever. God provides a spouse. He, he prepares the bride. As Revelation 21 says where John saw that holy city, that new Jerusalem, that picture of God's church coming down out of heaven. He says from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And 2 Corinthians says that the bride of Christ will be presented as a chaste virgin to Christ. His church will be purified and presented to Christ on that great day. And that's when that union between Christ and His bride will be perfected in glory, where it will be undiluted forever in the presence of Christ with His people forever. And so the full purpose of mankind was they were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that purpose will be fulfilled in His people when, when, when they are redeemed and brought into glory. And there, their purpose will be known as they can glorify Him in an undiluted, unadulterated relationship with God forever. 
And that's why there's no marriage in heaven, it says. Because there's no more need to fill and subdue the earth. There's no more need for, for that pattern or that picture of Christ. Because there in heaven, those, who, uh, those of you who are in Christ will live in that holy purity and that beauty and that union without sin in Christ's presence forever. But now in this life, whether a marriage is at a, at a, at a high point or a low point, at a, we need to see the pattern of marriage and that in it, it represents Christ and His church. Because that makes us see past our circumstances and the place where we are. That we do not focus on our marriage as the, as the highlight of our life, as, 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 the only, as the only as an external blessing. Or as we do not become discouraged only by, by the things that go wrong, but that we can see past it to Christ. Because if we, if we see marriage only as a, way, a place and a way to make ourselves happy and to fulfill our needs, then we will do what we want with it. And when it doesn't turn out the way we want, and we, then we walk away. And we leave when it's no longer what we thought it should be. But if we see the greater picture of marriage, the true purpose behind it, then we realize that there's a reason while it says in the vows, till death do us part. And in our every thought or every word or every deed, whether we are single, whether we are married, will be governed by the desire to promote and to preserve the undiluted marriage or potential marriage because it is especially a picture of Christ. How Christ loved the church. How he gave himself for her to save and to purify adulterated sinners who have become not only diluted in our relationship, but even divorced, separated from God in our sin. Driven out of his presence. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in paradise. Driven from his presence. And so marriage is that gospel message in a polluted and an adulterated world that broken sinners are now being united to God through Christ in that one holy union. In our lives, in marriage or in singleness, must promote this gospel to build each other up in the one most holy faith, to promote the holiness and purity in the life as the bride of Christ. To promote a holiness and a beauty in every believer in this world, in whatever state we are. And in a day that we live, the most basic way to be a gospel witness is to live in moral purity, in undiluted lives, following, seeking to follow the will of God. And in Him, there is forgiveness for those who see how far short we fall from this standard which God has given. And again, as we started off, we recognize that we do not enter heaven because we can keep this command. But we look to Christ, who is the one and only one who God has sent into this world to redeem those broken by sin 
adulterated in her hearts and thoughts, separated from God in her sin, broken and defiled. Yet he has come to purify and to redeem and to reconcile and to unite in him. May he be our focus today and every day, especially when we think of the marriage bond.